peace be with you. My name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn Heights. And as Dodd said, we are continuing this week our sermon series through the book of Galatians, Paul's letter to the Galatians. Time after time, the Apostle Paul wrote letters in order to defend and clarify the Christian gospel, to defend and clarify the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. And in this letter to the Galatians, Paul addresses all sorts of issues, but always for the purpose of defending and clarifying the gospel. At the beginning of this letter, Paul is astonished. The Galatians have abandoned the gospel. And so after taking a moment to defend his ministry against the false teachers and those who opposed him, Paul begins to share a couple anecdotes, two true stories in support of his argument. In the first anecdote, Paul is standing side by side with Peter and the other apostles. This is what we read last week. Uh, they, they put their hands in the middle, they affirm one another, and they agree to a strategic division of labor in service to their king. And now in the second anecdote this week, which we read about today, Paul opposes Peter to his face. And so they were standing side by side, and now they're face to face. And the reason, according to Paul, is because Peter's actions were out of step with the gospel. Once again, we see Paul stepping in to defend and clarify the gospel. Now, I, I want to open with a story about Peter. It's a relevant story. It's a story that will help us to understand what Paul is trying to say here in Galatians 2. In the book of Acts, chapter 10, Peter has a vision. He sees an enormous sheet being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And within that sheet, there are all sorts of animals. Now, according to Israel's dietary laws, some of those animals were clean and some of those animals were unclean. And then God tells Peter, eat. Now, strictly speaking, there was nothing wrong with that image. There was nothing wrong with God's command. There never is. There were clean animals on the sheet for Peter to eat. However, over the centuries, Jewish tradition had placed additional man-made rules on top of God's law. And these man-made rules prevented Peter from eating even the clean animals because they had come into contact with the unclean. But that rule is, is nowhere to be found in Scripture. Interestingly, Peter's interpretation of his vision has nothing to do with food. The man-made rules that had been placed over God's law also prevented Jews from associating with non-Jews, or what the Bible calls Gentiles. Jews could not visit Gentile homes. Jews could not eat with Gentiles. Jews could not even high-five a Gentile. And so as Peter reflects upon this vision, he comes to the realization that the mission God gave to Israel, church, the, the church's mission, depends upon interacting with unclean people. The church's mission depends upon interacting with outsiders. In fact, through Peter's ministry, God was making the unclean clean. Immediately after this vision, Peter visited the home of a Gentile, preached to the Gentiles there, watched as the Holy Spirit was poured out upon those Gentiles, baptized those Gentiles, and then shared a meal with those Gentiles. And the other apostles were surprised by his actions. But once, once Peter shared his vision and testified to the Holy Spirit's work amongst the Gentiles, the other apostles glorified God 
saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. And so even though Paul, we we saw this last week, even though Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, it was Peter, the apostle to the Jews, who was first revealed within Scripture teaching and practicing full Gentile inclusion. Despite the long-standing man-made traditions that required Peter to avoid Gentiles, he now begins fellowshipping with them. And that brings us to our passage today. As I mentioned earlier, Paul is sharing another anecdote here. He's rebuking Peter in public. And now Paul, Paul is most likely telling this story in order to set the record straight. The false teachers in Galatia were probably twisting this story um, in order to suggest that Peter actually agreed with them. Peter doesn't eat with Gentiles, and so Paul's wrong. And as we'll see, there's a lot at stake here. This was not, not, not a slightly different doctrinal viewpoint. This was not merely a different way of doing things. Without Peter's vision in Acts 10, without Paul's rebuke in Galatians 2, the people in this room may have never heard the gospel. We are here today because the door to God's kingdom has been opened to the Gentile. That's us. So what's at stake? Nothing less than who we are in relation to Jesus Christ. The people in this room need Peter to be wrong here. We need Paul to be right. Often, Gentile Christians read this passage and assume that Paul and the other apostles had renounced all of the rules and rituals that attended Judaism, as if, as if the Jewish Christians said, yay, bacon, and started working seven days a week. That truly was not their posture towards the law. In fact, Acts chapters 25 and 28, in them, Paul claims to have done nothing in opposition to the law, the temple, or Israel's customs. So Paul will not allow us to read his letter to the Galatians as an anti-law statement. We'll get to that in verse 19, but for now let's read verses 11 to 13. But when Cephas, that's another name for Peter, when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Sounds like a fun party. (laughs) And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So Paul, Paul was one of the church leaders in a city called Antioch. And there it had been the custom that Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians would eat together at the same table. In fact, as the Holy Spirit worked through Paul and the other leaders there, the church in Antioch had matured into an ethnically diverse and fully integrated congregation. Now, from a cultural perspective, it's tough for us to understand how serious these issues were for the early church. Table fellowship was a big deal. Houston is an ethnically diverse city, and hopefully we wouldn't think twice about sharing a meal with someone from a different ethnicity. But this wasn't the case in the early church. Much like circumcision, table fellowship, that's eating together, 
was an external act that created insiders and outsiders. And so both circumcision and table fellowship were part of the same issue, whether or not Gentiles needed to become Jews in order to belong to God's kingdom, whether or not Gentiles needed to become Jews in order to join God's kingdom. At first, Peter was happy to eat with his non-Jewish friends. After all, God had revealed this to Peter through that vision in Acts chapter 10. However, the false teachers arrived. These were the people who were adamant about requiring Gentiles to follow Jewish rules and rituals in order to come to the table, to belong in God's kingdom. And upon their arrival, Peter effectively pushes himself away from the table and begins treating his Gentile brothers and sisters like second-class citizens. So Peter knew deep down that Jesus, the king of this new world, was creating one new family with Jews and Gentiles alike, but his actions were a threat to the unity of the church. If the Christians in Antioch were to follow Peter's lead, and it looks like they were, it would have resulted in a divided Christianity right off the bat. Look at verse 14. When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Paul says, Peter, you've been living like a Gentile, intermingling with both Jews and non-Jews. You've shared table fellowship with Gentiles. You've treated them as equals. But now your behavior implies that Gentiles must become Jews in order to join your elite club, the inner circle of God's people. You are living hypocritically. Peter's conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Peter knew the truth, but he wasn't living in accordance with the truth. Now, before we move on, I want to suggest that Paul's rebuke of Peter probably continues through to verse 21. In the Bibles in your seats, verse 14 is surrounded by quotation marks. But keep in mind, this letter was written in ancient Greek, which uses very little punctuation. So I would submit that Paul's quote continues through to verse 21. That said, the content of Paul's argument doesn't change much. Um, I do think, though, it explains why he says in verse 15, we ourselves are Jews by birth. He's still talking to Peter. It would be very strange for him to say, we ourselves are Jews by birth in a letter addressed to both Jews and Gentiles, right? Let's read verses 15 to 18. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Okay. It's really important that we slow down here and understand what Paul is saying. I want to define three terms for us. Number one is, is the word justified. In the sense that Paul uses this word, 
he refers to a legal verdict. Rather than facing condemnation before God, justified people have been exonerated by God, declared not guilty. You may have heard it said, justified means just as if I'd never sinned. That's super cheesy, but it actually captures the idea fairly well. You, you don't have to be innocent in order to be exonerated. We are guilty, but because of Jesus, we are justified. Number two is works of the law. In this context, the works of the law were the rules and rituals that marked Jewish identity. The false teachers in Galatia wanted the Gentiles to observe the works of the law, which define who is Jewish and who is not. Number three, faith in Christ. So this phrase in the Greek, faith in Christ, is perhaps more accurately translated as the faithfulness of Christ. It's not a huge deal either way, but I, but I do think it makes more sense out of verse 16. So our exoneration is less about our faith and more about Jesus' faithfulness, though our faith is absolutely essential. With those definitions in mind, I'm going to read 15 and 16 again and, and input those definitions. We ourselves are Jews by birth, circumcised, and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person, whether Jew or Gentile, is not exonerated by Jewish identity markers, but through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. So we Jews also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be declared not guilty by the faithfulness of Christ and not by Jewish identity markers. Because by Jewish identity markers, no one will get a not guilty verdict. So to summarize 15 to 18, Paul says, Peter, you know full well that Jewish identity markers do nothing to justify us. If you of all people rebuild the wall of division between Jew and Gentile, you are rebuilding a wall that you originally tore down. You were the one with the vision of the sheet. You were the first apostle to welcome the Gentiles. And now by refusing to eat with them, you are undoing your hard work. Either you were wrong to include the Gentiles yesterday, or you are wrong to exclude the Gentiles today. Either way, you are wrong. Now, let's read verses 19 to 21. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. What does it mean that Paul died to the law? Well, to be sure, Paul has not died to the law in the sense that he no longer seeks to obey God. Rather, Paul dies to the law as a means of justification. He dies to the idea that a not guilty verdict could ever be achieved through obedience to rules and rituals. This marks a radical shift in worldview for Paul. Because God's blessing is breaking out of Israel and into the nations, into the new world of God's global kingdom, the sphere of God's blessing is no longer confined to ethnic Israel. And so, again, Paul is not saying 
Let's just forget about those old, outdated rules. This is, this is a theological principle. I've died to the law. I've been crucified with Christ. And Christ, who fulfilled the law, lives in me. Because Christ fulfilled the law and Christ lives in me, the life I live is a life of faith and law fulfillment. Okay, lawbreakers go to prison, right? People, those who obey the law, enjoy freedom. Well, Drew, that's me, Drew was a lawbreaker, but Drew died. And now, because Jesus did not break the law, and Jesus lives in Drew, Drew is not a lawbreaker. The law is still good, but now Drew has been set free. Because the law has been fulfilled in Christ Jesus, its, its function has fundamentally altered. Not because the law was a bad thing. Not because the law was a failed experiment that God abandoned for a new strategy. The law was a wonderful and glorious thing. It was holy and just, but it was given for a purpose and for a time. And when Jesus came, that time was up. God gave his divine law to Israel so that Jesus, the true Israel, might bring it to fulfillment. But rather than doing away with the law, the law has been transformed. We relate to it differently now. The law has been written on our hearts. And by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we have internalized God's statutes. And so, yes, we continue to obey God. He is still our Father and Creator and King. But we do so knowing that Jesus has accomplished what our obedience to the law never could, justification, exoneration for you and for me and for all who call upon Jesus in faith. According to Paul, Peter's conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Peter believed one thing, but he was doing another thing. His manner of living did not match his doctrine. He was being inconsistent. But to Peter's credit, he responded humbly to Paul's rebuke, and he ended up repenting. And so we need to learn from both of these examples. Sometimes our conduct is not in step with the truth of the gospel. Sometimes being a faithful brother or sister requires rebuking a brother or sister. But like Paul, we should rebuke one another lovingly and in a gospel-informed manner. Paul does not heap condemnation upon Peter. Paul reminds him of the gospel. And like Peter, we should respond humbly when rebuked. We should repent quickly. We should bring our conduct back in step with the truth of the gospel. Christian living requires constant repentance and realignment. Every thought and every action should be measured against the beautiful gospel truth that it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And that applies to everything. Every small decision, every big decision. From the shows we watch, to the jobs we work, to the roommates we choose, Christ lives in me. We take care of our bodies because Christ lives in us. We govern our passions because it's not just about what we want. 
Christ lives in us. And this union with Jesus Christ is a governing principle for the Christian life. At the core of your essence, you are who you are because of what Jesus has done. Christ in you, you in Christ. We trust in the faithfulness of Christ on our behalf and then we live as though the union forged between Christ and his church has the power to recreate the world because it does. When Peter, when Peter pushed away from the table, the fundamental question that needed answering was this. Who are the true people of God? Or in terms of the covenant, who are the true sons of Abraham? Who's the true Israel? Now, first and foremost, the true Israel is the Lord Jesus Christ. Just as David the shepherd boy who stood alone on behalf of Israel to defeat Goliath and his army. Just like David, Jesus stood alone on behalf of Israel to defeat death by dying. And now his victory is Israel's victory. And he has taken the throne as Israel's king. So Jesus is the true Israel, the son of Abraham, who was justified through perfect obedience to the law. So from there, the question becomes, who belongs to Jesus? Who gets to share in his victory? Just the Jews? No, says Paul. Belonging to Jesus is not a matter of ethnicity, nor a matter of rules and rituals. Belonging to Jesus is a matter of faith. He was faithful, and we are justified through faith in the faithful one. Faith is the new boundary marker in God's kingdom. We are united to Jesus by faith, and everyone who trusts in Jesus, the true Israel, joins the true people of God. By faith, we are sons of Abraham, children of the promise. And so to borrow language from chapter 3, every single person, whether Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free, Every single person who claims the faithfulness of Christ as their own faithfulness, the victory of Christ as their own victory, belongs. So trust in Jesus. Claim his faithfulness as your faithfulness. Claim his victory as your victory. Step into his kingdom. Step into his new world. It's a new world where everyone is welcome to God's table, provided they come in faith. Provided they come ready and willing to abandon their old loyalties and acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord and King of all. In a moment, this King is going to welcome you to his table for a ritual meal that we call communion, or the Lord's Supper, or the Eucharist. Not only does the church get a weekly opportunity to dine with our king, we get a, a weekly reminder that his love and his self-sacrifice put the food on our table. His dominion is universal, and yet he's present, he's near, and he provides for us. And according to Paul's principle here, principle of the table, Christians should be eager to share table fellowship with all who confess faith in Christ. 
This is profoundly relevant for the 21st century church. Jesus is our one Lord, and he is worthy of having one family around one table. In fact, he prayed for that. And so, Paul's rebuke of Peter presents a powerful challenge to Christians today. Because it's all too common today for Christians to exclude fellow Christians from the communion table over secondary or even tertiary disagreements. This is the dark underbelly of denominationalism, sectarianism. Why fight for unity when it's so easy to split? Church A doesn't like alcohol. Church B baptizes babies. Church C prays to Mary. And so Church A refuses to commune with Church B, refuses to commune with Church C. But upon what basis, upon what basis do we separate and eat at separate tables? Our common faith is what unites us, not identical doctrine. Now, maybe you'll remind me that Church C actually denies the doctrine of X. And I get it, I'm... Unity is messy. These are complicated things. But when disagreement happens, what is our default response? Do we move toward one another or away from one another? Shouldn't our one Lord have one people at one table? Think about all of the interpersonal conflict within our congregation right now. You may have had a disagreement or an argument with someone this week. Maybe you're just harboring a little bit of bitterness. Well, you're about to share the same meal. You're about to sit at the same table, God's table. And that is a beautiful thing, and it's a thing that should change things. If Jesus showed up to administer his supper, his supper, who would he welcome? just the evangelical Protestants, just the Roman Catholics? Is Jesus not with us now? Who does he welcome? All of us, his family, everyone who calls upon him in faith. And you can individualize this question too. Next time you're tempted to think your life might improve if you found a new church, ask yourself, Upon what basis would I be breaking fellowship with these people? Upon what basis would I be leaving to share table fellowship with a different community? There are perfectly legitimate reasons to leave a church. But it's worth asking, is unity my tendency? I want to close with one more story. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 15 a group of Pharisees came to Jesus and attempted to rebuke him for not following man-made traditions that had been placed over God's law. They were claiming that Jesus' disciples were unclean because they failed to wash their hands before dinner. Now, maybe you agree with them, uh, but the Pharisees weren't just germaphobes, okay? It went deeper than that. We won't go into who they were, but it's worth noting that Paul, the author of Galatians, was a Pharisee. That's interesting. In response to these accusations, Jesus gives an example of one man-made tradition that actually permitted the breaking of God's law. 
In other words, he turns their rebuke around to reveal their hypocrisy and their disobedience. And then, after teaching everyone a lesson on what it actually means to be unclean, he encounters a Canaanite woman. Now the, not only were the Canaanites Gentiles, the Canaanites were Israel's enemies. And the mere presence of a Canaanite was a reminder that Israel had failed to obey God. And yet when this Canaanite woman, this Gentile enemy, came to Jesus in humility and faith, Jesus commended her. He welcomed her and he met her in her need. See, for, for Jesus, faith is faith no matter who you are. And that's the essence of Paul's argument to Peter. Our common faith is what makes us family. Our common faith is the basis for our table fellowship. Any practice to the contrary effectively rebuilds a wall that Jesus tore down. So, remember, God's kingdom is coming. Jesus has been given authority over every nation on the earth, whether the Israelites, the Canaanites, or the Americans. But the dominion of King Jesus begins with you and your neighbor. So welcome your neighbor to your table. Welcome the widow. Welcome the orphan. Welcome the refugee. Welcome the townhouse owners who are ruining this neighborhood. I live in a townhouse. Be promiscuous with your table fellowship. Jesus will meet you there. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus. Um, thank you for your people and this kingdom that you've called us into and uh, all that you've promised to do through it. We look forward to a day when, um, when there is no more division uh, and we get to eat at your table uh, in all its fullness. God, I pray that you would make us a welcoming community, a unified community. And God, I pray, for, I pray for the unity of your global church. We know that you prayed for it, and so we pray for it. And we know that it's a tall order. Um, but God, we, we pray for unity in your church because you deserve it. In Jesus' name, amen.